Have you seen me dice bag? The Grognard Files. Hello, my name is Dirt the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast, where we talk bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. This is the second part of a two-part episode all about basic D&D. It's not so much an extra bit, it's more of a module. GF43X, if you will. There's been some great feedback from listeners about part one. It unlocked lots of nostalgia and there's some kickback from people who didn't agree with Judge Blythe's love of race as class Also, outraged protests that the turn order was a reactionary throwback to the wargaming years. But isn't that what makes listening to podcasts so much fun? Shouting disagreements at two know-nothing chancers who never answer back. Strong opinions, robust debate, Byzantine variations of play and rules interpretations are what makes what we do so much fun and healthy. We're joined once again by Lou Pulsifer, who defined the role of the role-playing column back in the early years of White Dwarf and Dragon magazine. He's lost none of his verve as we discuss some of the controversy around the features that were published in White Dwarf. He faces the Games Master screen and a random table, which also summons Games Workshop's Valley of the Four Winds, Britannia and Ian Worlds, where you can continue to follow Lou's views. The Welsh will damn well fight, declares Lou in the interview. So, descending from the valleys, daubed in wood, is Daily Dwarf from Twitter, returning with an essay that I'll read, discussing his love of the Holmes edition of Basic D&D. Also from Wales, is Chris Watkins with his first, last and everything, which includes his thoughts on the Mensa version of D&D, the last game he played and the game that means everything to him, which he delivers with such a passion that I'm sure that you'll want to investigate it further. Chris and Joe Watkins and Bonamy Games have been supporters from the very beginning of the Grog Pod. He was the co-host of the first grog meet, but was unable to attend due to a dishwasher-related injury that we won't go into here. It makes me squeamish thinking about it, even four years on. He was one of the first to review the podcast with this. A fine reminiscence on the joys of discovering RuneQuest back in the 1980s, drawn into a modern context with an appreciation of the developments of 21st century RPGs. The style tends towards monologue, which in a podcast of this length, some might find a teensy bit wearing, but Dirk and company cut through this with Boltonian tones and a gentle, clean humour that makes the whole affair quite soothing for me personally. It's at its best, during the light-hearted dialogue with Dirk's rules lawyer friend. Well, 
my rule lawyer friend blithely returns to look at the visual appeal of D&D and we search through the attic to look at some of the covers that we admire. I'll be back at the end to bring you up to date with some of the parish notices. Until then, ramblers, let's get rambling. Games Master Screen! Okay, welcome to the room of role-playing rambling. I'm going to put this screen between me and Lou Pulsifer and roll apparently at random on this table. So here goes. Okay, so first up is, uh, well, it's it's a critical hit, actually. It's a White Dwarf. One of the uh, contentious um, pieces of work that you did, uh, which we absolutely loved, was the uh, Necromancer uh, character class. Um because even though you said that uh, it should only be an NPC, um, the history of our group was we didn't have uh, the player's handbook, and so we didn't have access to the character classes. So we used to have to rely on the um, articles that we found in White Dwarf. So, uh, yeah, we played necromancers. <laughs> well, well, I'm sure a lot of people did, but, uh, you know, what else can you do? You can say don't use it as character class, but if people do, they're going to. The one thing you learn as a a designer of games is if the rules allow something to happen, somebody will do it. And if you make rules, even for an NPC, somebody will use it as a PC. I I recall that because I read some of that recently, went back and read some of that. People blamed me for other people using this evil character. It's not my fault. (laughs) I can't stop it. You know, it's it's like people who think that a game designer should teach people math. No, <laughs> they've got to learn <laughs> math some other way. <laughs> I'll try to make it as simple as possible, but that's that's the best I can do. And I think it uh, also brought up the other contentious uh, ongoing argument of whether you, you should be on the side of good or evil uh, in games. Is it about heroism or is it about characters who are... Uh, the, the motivations need to be honourable. And I think even at uh, 12 or 13, we kind of knew that we were just doing it for fun and we weren't going to descend into evil by uh, playing these type of characters. Well, when I started to play, I knew what I wanted to be. I wanted to be a heroic wizard and I wanted to, it was good against evil, BD for law or BD for chaos and so on and so forth. I was always a good guy and I behaved like a good guy. You know, there are people who say they're good guys and they're really chaotic neutral, <laughs> really thugs. And they, they want to say they're good guys so they can get away with it, whatever they want, uh, which I never allowed when I was a GM. But a lot of people like to play that way. And nowadays, everything is more about shades of gray. And, oh, there's not really any good guys. They're all, they have motives that are despicable in the end and blah, blah, blah. So we don't care about good and bad. I still don't agree with that, but that's the way a lot of people are. The, the other famous piece that you produced for uh, White Dwarf, um, which is often discussed on our podcast, is the adventure you did in uh, Moria, uh, the introductory adventure. I don't so much recall playing that. Actually, a few years ago, I ran that for some friends of mine when I visited them. And then I assigned their characters in the place of the characters that were actually in the uh, Moria adventures, and they seemed to have a good time because they had a couple of powerful characters and then a lot of low-level characters, and that's worked out fine. What people really objected to there is there's two ways to evaluate a character. One is the functional way, and one is the emotional way. Well, the people who saw Gandalf and Aragorn as the most powerful character for their particular purposes, 
thought they should be really powerful in D&D terms, you know, way up in the high double figures and so on. Well, I looked at what they could actually do, the functional version, and her functional versions, Gandalf was an eighth-level cleric with a ring of warmth and, and some kind of staff, and Aragorn is a seventh-level ranger, worked out just fine. And we're much more practical in D&D terms. But again, remembering, I always felt that you get up in double figures and it, it, the game breaks down. But a lot of people disagreed with me, and that's okay. You can't avoid people disagreeing with you unless you don't do anything. And it has to be said, it was a, it's a very colourful uh, adventure little scene, and it's great for introducing new players because everybody knows that confrontation with the Balrog. Right. And the D&D Balrogs then were much weaker than the Balrogs are now. The original D&D Balrog had 10 hit dice in armor class 2 and did 2 to 12 and 3 to 18. You see, I can remember that. <laughs> so they were tough, but you could beat them. I don't remember if you had to have a magic sword or not, but you could beat them, even if when you were not all that high level. I remember a second level fighter who happened to be on a, a horse with a lance charging a Balrog. And uh, he survived. His name was Bilbash the Rash. So it kind of fit what he was about. Uh, but a modern Balrog, oh God, you wouldn't have a prayer. Right, okay, let's uh, roll on the, on the dice again, okay. And uh, we've mentioned this previously. I've got a, a nine, and this is uh, Valley of the Four Winds, which is a game that you produce for Games Workshop. And this is an interesting one because this, this is actually based on a story, wasn't it? And I remember playing this. Yes, and I looked into trying to get it reprinted recently and discovered the story was mostly written by Dave Langford, who is a very well-known uh, science fiction and fantasy fandom guy in England who is still around. Because I have the rights to everything else, the rights reverted to me, but the story is another thing. And it is an unusual game. I've designed two games that have been published that are based on somebody else's idea, and this was one of them. The other is Dual Britannia, which was the idea of the publishers of the, the reissue of Britannia, which just came out last month. Um, and they both worked out quite well. It's the only game I've written that tried to conform to a story and still let people write their own story. And I remember, remember sitting in a little bed sit in uh, London and, and having people come over and play the game. Uh, at that time, I play, played the, in playtests. Nowadays, I try to avoid it because it, the designer's effect is very bad. And I can describe what that is if you want. But I think it's better if the designer doesn't play in the playtest. That one worked out pretty well. And people could experience the story and still alter the story to, to fit whatever their strategies were. I know a guy whose project now is to make a huge board. I think he's already made the huge board. And then he wants to use like one-inch miniatures because the game was based originally on a miniatures collection. Valley of the Four Winds was the name of the miniatures collection, where there's made up miniatures. Then Dave Langford wrote the story. And then I wrote the game or designed the game based on the story, which was based on the miniatures. And some of those miniatures have been reissued and the company I was in contact with some years ago. They would be happy if the game came out again, but I don't think it's going to happen. Of course, uh, Dave Langford uh, contributed to White Dwarf as well. He did uh, the Critical Mass column. Yeah. And I, what I remember of the game is that uh, it, the action moves clockwise around the board, doesn't it? And um, you interact with incidents that occur in the story. Yes. And of course, at this remove, I don't remember how I arranged that, but 
obviously I wanted to arrange that to conform to the story as, as much as I could and still have a good game. The game is always the thing, not the story, not the history. The game is what counts. There, there is a, a bit of the story where the opponents use uh, tactics of barrels, hay bales rolling down uh, the hill. And uh, yeah, that, that's, that's uh, simulated in the game, isn't it? At a, a certain point. I need to dig it out. I've not played it for a long time. Well, I haven't played it for an even longer time, so I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's, it has a fantastic uh, cover, and I think it was a cover that uh, drew me to it, if I'm honest, the uh, Barbarian and the uh, Sword, yeah. Generally, once a game is published, I do not play it, because right. I'm done. I design yes. games for other people, not for myself. Some designers design games for themselves, so they want to play. I start out by playing solo several times, and I play all the, the sides in that case. So I've played it a lot, in effect, and I don't need to play it anymore. And then I watch other people play it a lot. And by that time, I'm on to the next game. I design a lot of games at a, at a given time as well. I don't take design one game till I'm done and then design another till I'm done. Let's uh, roll again. Okay, so this is uh, 15, and uh, we have mentioned this um, a couple of times. You're right, uh, contributing to articles on EN World. So how did that come about, and uh, what, what kind of subjects have you, have you covered there? You know, EN World is the number one site by far, I think, for people who play tabletop role-playing games, certainly fantasy role-playing games. I tended to not go there very often because it seemed to be an awful lot of bickering amongst people in the comments. People who sort of like to hear themselves talk, except it was on paper instead of otherwise. And there's still a lot of that there. But one day I saw an announcement somewhere that they wanted to have a column. And they actually paid a little bit, which almost nobody does anymore. And I could retain the rights, which was very important. Because I quit writing for White Dwarf and Dragon when they wanted to buy all the rights. And I said, no way. And that's why when I get around to it, I'm going to issue a couple of books, big books, pretty big books, of reprints of all the articles from all those magazines that I wrote for. Uh, but I've had this scheme in mind for at least five years, and I haven't done it yet. It's, <laughs> it's partly, <laughs> you have this magazine article, but all I've got is a JPEG of it. And the JPEGs usually aren't good enough that you can really turn them into to, to text. Um, anyway, I got in touch with the uh, EN world people and, you know, a lot of people, older people know who I am, so to speak. And so they said, okay, yeah, try it. And uh, that's worked out reasonably well, pretty well. So I've been doing that since uh, April of 17 and I'm getting near a hundred columns worth. And I'm to the point where I have more ideas than I'll be able to use, or at least for, for the foreseeable future. So, uh, Whenever I'm feeling unproductive and I don't want to do anything else, I can go look at all those drafts that are in various states and pick out one that sounds interesting and then work on it and finish it off. Yeah. And it's not very long a column. It's 600 words, although usually it ends up being a lot more than that, but officially 600 words. Uh, and then people like to comment a lot, and that's really what it's there for is to engender comments. And uh, there have been times when the comments were pretty nasty. And for a while, I didn't even read the comments. Nowadays, I read the comments and uh, it gives me ideas for more columns. So <laughs> it, it works out real well. I, I occasionally will put my own comment in. But 
that generally. So, so the column's uh, named Worlds of Design, and it takes on the various topics. Uh, I, I like the one with the, uh, again, it's picked up a, a topic that was spoken about, but about character death and handling character death and, uh, you know, how to deal with uh, situations where um, the both the player and the GM doesn't want the character to die due to continuity. You know, people have been writing about Dungeons and Dragons for 40 some years. So I'm not likely to pick a topic that nobody's ever written anything about. That's okay. I'll give my take on it. Try to find a question I can ask the readers that sets them off. Sometimes they set themselves off in their own way. For example, the latest one, and these appear about every two weeks. I'd called it uh, world building, taking account of cultural change. Well, the editor sometimes changes my title, and he changed it to Escaping Tolkien. Uh, well, I, I talk about Tolkien in it, but most of it is not about Tolkien. And yet the comments have all been about escaping Tolkien, you know, like elves. No, get rid of elves. Well, even if you have different kinds of elves, you're really playing against the Tolkien elves. The only way not to have elves is to have no goddamn elves. But then there's <laughs> games that say they have no elves, but they have characters or, or races that are a whole lot like elves. Really. <laughs> You know, people who, who stay to themselves and they have magic use and they live a long time and so on. Well, it sounds like elves to me. And that all comes out in the comments. It is there really to engender comments. And of course, that's it's not that different from writing articles for White Dwarfs when you come down to it. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. It, <clears throat> I wasn't aware that uh, the uh, articles were being written, so it's been great just catching up on them because, as you say, it's... Uh, it, it, it's revived uh, some of the same debates that we're having uh, back 40 years ago, but just with a new perspective uh, yes. on them. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to roll again. Uh, so this is last not least, uh, it's uh, 20. So it's uh, Britannia, and uh, this is a game that you're uh, most famous for. If our uh, listeners uh, aren't aware of uh, Britannia. How, how would you picture what is uh, what is the game? It's a thousand years of British history. So it's an epic game. And for that reason, it lasts four or five hours. And that's with experienced players. The first time people play, if none of them have played before, it might take eight hours. And, you know, you can't have an epic game if it's not a long game. Not really. Not what I'd call epic anyway. It uses an idea, which I got from some other, uh, from a game called Agent Conquest, that each player controls several different nations. And those nations each have their own objectives. And they can score points for their objectives. And then whoever scores the most points throughout the whole game wins the game. It's for four players. There's a three-player version as well. It's a deep game. The first time you play, you miss all kinds of things. And, you know, after you've played five or ten times, if you have a strategic bent, because it's a strategic game, then you will actually understand what's going on and what maybe what you need to do. But as I've said, there are people who played 500 times and they still enjoy it and they still learn new things occasionally. Sometimes the guys at the WBC tournament like to tell stories like somebody was up in Caledonia, which is the far north. And just for the hell of it, his objective in the game was to move down to Cornwall, and he made it. Sounds pretty ridiculous to me, but that's what he did, and he enjoyed it, and, and that's all you can ask. So, so what, are the um, component, what are the components of the game? So what, 
Is well, it cards or meeples? We, it's, uh, there are no cards. <laughs> there are a number of Britannia-like games, and rarely do they use cards. It is perfect information except for the dice rolling. And there's a lot of dice rolling. Typical game is about 800 rolls of the dice. But otherwise, you can see all the armies. You can see when new armies are going to turn up. So it's kind of uh, like chess in that you generally have to react to what the players, other players are doing. And if you don't react to it, it may lead you to lose the game. And I liked chess-like games like the Avalon Hill games. I didn't like chess because it was so set in stone and there had been so much uh, study of it that it just was too much like work. So when I was 15, I retired from playing chess. That's what I like to say. <laughs> and I wasn't all that good at it probably either, but you know. Nowadays, in the, this reissue of Britannia, which just came out last month, the armies are all plastic figures. In former editions, they were cardboard. If you did the Kickstarter, you also get forts that are plastic, but that was only for the Kickstarter people. In the same package, there is uh, dual Britannia, which is for two players and lasts up to 90 minutes. So it's, it tends to use a lot of the same methods, but it's a much, much shorter game. So it's much more practical. And of course, it's also for two players if you don't have three or four. So that's been issued. Uh, it still may not be online in the United States in the online sellers. Uh, you can buy it from PSC Games, who's a publisher. And I can give you a long story about how this all happened, if you like. Yeah, that would be good. We go back originally, uh, I designed it. By 1980, it was essentially done. I don't remember any of the details. I know that because I discovered a game that... Uh, I'd written some notes for that was all of Europe and it had taken us 12 hours to play. And I wrote, well, you know, if Britannia ends up, and I didn't call it Britannia, I called it Invasions of Europe. But I wrote, well, if Britannia takes off, then we can worry about this one. But I never did. But in 1980 then, Britannia was essentially done. In, I sent it to Avalon Hill and they said, games of that era don't sell. And that may have been true at the time. So then I took it to Gibsons who had published Swords and Wizardry and uh, a guy called Roger Haywood was the right-hand man of Michael Gibson, and he played it for two years, and he modified it some. He was a developer, uncredited developer. He also changed some things by misunderstanding that just definitely should not have happened. Um, but it was published in 1986. Well, by 1986, I was in my 20-year hiatus from the game industry. I played D&D with my friends. I made up some D&D stuff, which will be in those reprint books. And that was it. I had to make a living and I learned computers and so on. And I did make a living much better than I could have in games. But for 20 years, I was out of it. So I opened the game. I, I looked at it. And I said, that's nice. And I closed it up. And that was that. And I did not see anybody play it until 2004. And I don't know if anybody has a story like that. Uh, it's certainly unusual. So in 2004, I went to PrezCon, which is a, a convention in Charlottesville, Virginia, I went and watched the Britannia tournament there. And for a while, I just lurked. And then I finally identified myself. And they were kind of, oh, wow, you know, because they've been playing the game since 1987 when Avalon Hill published it. Once Gibson's published it, then Avalon Hill published it. It was screwed up. <laughs> I, the jutes were floating out in, in the, the English Channel long after Jutland had gone away because of the misunderstanding that 
rating was the units, not rating was the term. And uh, I said, no way, quite loudly. <laughs> and they all remember that because it was so funny. So ultimately, I got a, a second edition done in 2006 because Avalon Hill had gone to pot in 1997. It had been bought by Hasbro. Hasbro didn't know what to do with this stuff because they really only wanted diplomacy. But the owners of Avalon Hill made them buy the whole company <laughs> and they shut it down. And uh, they let Multiman Publishing, they said to the man at Multiman Publishing, well, you can publish this game, Britannia. Well, fortunately, they didn't because they didn't have any rights. When a game goes out of print, if the designer has been smart about the, the contract, all the rights revert to the designer. They don't continue forever with somebody else. And so ultimately, I wrote to Mola Man and said, you know, you got this game, but I got the rights. And they said, okay, good, good, fine. They, they didn't want to publish it. And in 2006, it was issued in a second edition by Fantasy Flight Games, and I fixed it. And I added a couple of other things, the Roman roads and, and Boudicca's Rebellion and so on. But mostly I fixed what I thought was wrong. And that meant adding constraints. And not everybody likes additional constraints. There's one guy who plays, and he thought he told me the, uh, not, not too long ago, you know, the first edition, the Avalon Hill edition, was the greatest game ever. And the second edition is okay. It's pretty good. <laughs> he didn't like the changes that had been made. But most people switched to the second edition, and most people prefer the second edition. Well, then that went up in 2012, and I was working on a third edition. And for some reason, I stopped working on a third edition because of criticism, I guess, because I was changing the third edition in ways that had additional constraints because I wanted it to be more realistic, if you will, because there are things in it that are not realistic. And there are things that just annoy me because people do it because... It's the best way to play. For example, the Welsh and the Romans almost always make an agreement immediately. Welsh, you can track to five areas and then submit, and then you can spread back out. And then the Romans have submitted the Welsh, but they don't have to fight the Welsh. But it's bad for the game because the Welsh actually fought the Romans more than anybody did. So in the third edition, they'll fight, by God. <laughs> There's no <laughs> doubt about it. I won't allow that to happen. But that kind of thing puts people off sometimes. So I just sort of, I've worked on other games, you know, in uh, this year I've had uh, a game called Stalingrad Besieged published as well as the combination of Britannia and Dual Britannia. And those third edition games are still there and I have to go back to them. But from 2012 to 2019, nothing was happening with Britannia. It was out of print. In 2019, PSC Games always wanted to get Britannia to publish. They'd always ask me about it. And I said, no, because I was thinking third edition. Well, I had contracted with them for a couple other games. And then they got Kickstarter disease. And Kickstarter disease is, oh, we can't publish a game unless it's short and simple and dumbed down and oh, shiny. Oh, shiny. Oh, you know, miniatures. Oh, no. <laughs> so I was kind of pissed off with them at the time. But I'd already got, had gone to England was coming to, coming to England and I already agreed to go meet him. So I went and meet him. So we met for a few hours and we talked and I gave him the finger for having done that to me, which fortunately I thought was funny. <laughs> and so I went away and the next day they sent me an email message and said, okay, you said you should have got Britannia reprinted soon after it went out of print. Well, we're, we're going to offer you re reprinting that version of Britannia, but with plastic pieces and with this additional game, the Dual Britannia was my title I came up with, where you have two players up to 90 minutes 
And it's sort of an introductory game for the methods that people then would use in the big game. And uh, they made me an offer I couldn't refuse, including a big advance. So if they canceled the damn contract, at least I had the advance. And that's what happened. And it went into uh, Kickstarter in July of last year. But then because of the pandemic, it's taken this long to get it actually distributed. So, so it's now been completely fulfilled to Kickstarter yes, backers. All, and... all the backers have got it. I've got my copies. <laughs> Designer's often the last person to get a copy. <laughs> Who knows what will happen after that? You know, it, again, it's it's got to get into distribution. And, and the hobby game shop distribution has collapsed yes. because the game shops couldn't be open. Uh, I think a lot of them maybe now are, but it's it's kind of nuts anyway because, you know, you go into a place where there's a lot of people, you're more likely to get infected. It's a shame, so isn't it? If the hobby, how, as far as the hobby recovers, it's not going to happen until there's a widely available, reliable vaccine. And that's not going to happen this year. So it's going to be a long time before game shops are open and people can meet in game meetings. And it's a four-player game. The big game is a four-player game. So you've got to have several people there. The dual Britannia and two players, perhaps you can you can get along with. Yeah, it, it is it is worrying. And hope, hopefully these uh, game shops will be able to continue because the entire model is based on uh, creating an environment for people to play, isn't it? To kind of counteract the online uh, retailers. So let's hope they can survive this. Many, many game shops were on the edge already. Yeah. If you have to shut down for months, you know, we see there are chains of of gyms that you go to in this country and they're all going bankrupt and restaurants are going bankrupt and, and anybody who relied on big groups of people meeting it's losing money like crazy. I stay home. That's that. <laughs> well, have a good rest of the day. And uh, it's great talking to you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. The White Dwarf. Home's basic. Back to the beginning. Swimming trunks. Check. Sun cream. Check. The Lord of the Rings. Check. That weird rule book. For the unplayable game. Check. Packing for my summer holiday in 1981, I made sure that I included all the essentials. The basic D&D rulebook was almost an afterthought, but, well, I liked the sound of the game called Dungeons & Dragons. Plus, my brother declared it way too complicated to understand, so that was a challenge I couldn't ignore. This was the Holmes basic with the iconic blue cover, the very first attempt to distill something like a coherent, intelligible game from Gygax and Arneson's Little Brown Books. J. Eric Holmes had set himself quite the task, but it turned out that he was more than up for the job. There was only two things I now remember from that summer holiday – One is accompanying Frodo and his diminutive chums as they evaded the Black Riders on their journey out to the Shire, and the other is a sense of overwhelming excitement I had after reading the Holmes Basic rulebook. It all made perfect sense to me at the time, or so I thought. This was the game my imagination had been waiting for. Role-playing games quickly became... An obsession. I still have that original copy of Basic D&D, 
box and all. Even in the depths of the deep freeze, TM, I could never quite bring myself to part with it. It's always survived the various RPG sell-offs and clear-outs I've had over the decades. Only the dice are missing, but that's another story. So, with the grog pod turning its focus onto basic D&D, I recently undertook my first full read-through of the game in many years. I wanted to see if I could identify just what it was that so struck a chord with me, to see if I could recreate the excitement, that lightning-in-a-bottle feeling that so captured me all those years ago. Let's start with that classic dramatic cover by David Sutherland. Two adventurers, a fighter and a magic user, burst in on a dragon sitting on its treasure hoard. But the dragon isn't looking at them, it's looking at you. You are involved, complicit in this endeavour, the third adventurer in the party. It's a clever composition, and it really draws you in as the reader, promising further excitement, lies within. Once inside, you are treated to Gary Gygax's foreword from the original edition. There are several things mentioned here that I didn't understand when I first encountered the game. What the hell is a fantasy campaign? Not to mention the fearsome egg of coot. But nevertheless, it all sounded very exciting. Then Eric Holmes takes us straight into character creation with a summary of the six now familiar abilities giving us a taste of what's coming. Fighting men, magic users, the miraculous spells of clerics, and despite being a prosaic explanation of the character abilities, Eric Holmes peppers them with little hints of adventure, such as this line for charisma. A charismatic male defeated by a witch, will not be turned into a frog, but kept enchanted as her lover. I think it was at this point, by the end of page five, that my 11-year-old self was convinced that this was the game for me. The character creation is efficiently dealt with. Fighters don't seem to get much that makes them stand out, at least not compared with magic users. Sure, you only get d4 hit points, no armour, and can only cast one spell at first level, but there's plenty of cool-sounding spells to choose from. Magic missile, tensor's floating disc, protection from evil. Get your magic user to the heady heights of third level, and more spells become available, like Invisibility, Duration, Infinite, ESP. Remember, the undead do not think, and Magic Mouth. I just loved the idea of this one. Magic Mouths featured in many of my early dungeons. And, to give some idea of the range of magical possibilities, translation, We're working on the Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, so make sure you buy it when it comes out. Eric Holmes 
whets our appetites with the names of some third-level spells. Explosive runes. Fireball. Monster summoning. How could you not be excited by this? Worried that the magic users are too fragile, though? Don't fret. There's another spellcasting class. The Cleric. That's a whole d6 worth of hit points and can swing a mace into the bargain. What's that? They can't cast any spells at first level? Never mind then. How about the thief? I think Eric Holmes has a soft spot for the thief class as he sells it really well. Thieves have special abilities to strike a deadly blow from behind, climb sheer surfaces, hide in shadows, flitch items and pick pockets, move with stealth, listen for noises behind closed doors, pick locks and remove small traps such as poison needles. Cool! Where do I sign up? Whichever class you go for, after rolling the hit points, buying some equipment and picking an alignment, I'm not sure my 11-year-old self really got my head around that concept. That's pretty much it. Don't get too attached to your player character, though, as there's no short rests here. Hit points can only be regained by magical assistance or by leaving the dungeon to regain them at a measly rate of 1 to 3 hit points per day. And don't forget the chilling pronouncement. If a character's hit score falls to zero, he is dead. There's an odd line near the end of the character creation stating that, at the DM's discretion, characters can be anything they want to be. For example, an expedition might include, in addition to the four basic classes and races, a centaur, a lawful werebear, and a Japanese samurai fighting man. But there's no details on how you might go about this, though. But whatever. You've got your character. Now, time to go adventuring. The book's focus now switches to the dungeon and the role of the dungeon master. There's rules for time, movement and encumbrance. Oh, hum. But we quickly move on to more exciting topics. Traps, secret doors, surprise, wandering monsters and combat. Oh my, while recognising that melee is the most exciting part of the game, Eric Holmes cleverly keeps the rules simple to avoid overwhelming the beginner. He basically explains the whole process in one paragraph. There's just two combat tables, one for the player characters and one for the monsters, Initiative is sorted out in dexed order and all weapons do 1d6 damage. He also includes some helpful examples featuring fighters Bruno the Battler and Mogo the Mighty together with Malchor the Magic User. In true low-level style, they make heavy work of dispatching some spiders with Bruno heading for Valhalla in the process. Great, I get it. Let's bash some monsters. Ah yes, the monster list 
from the band to the zombie. While being a player sounded appealing, I think it was when I read the monster descriptions for the first time that I realised that I wanted to be the dungeon master. Some names I recognised from the stories of myth, but many I didn't. Blink dogs, displacer beasts, gelatinous cubes, gnolls, kobolds, sturges. The list of exciting creatures seems to go on and on. And, despite basic D&D being for low-level characters, Eric Holmes includes some surprisingly powerful monsters. Okay, he has to include dragons, obviously, even if, as he warns, they are far too formidable for low-level characters. Purple worms, vampires and whites, however, get no such warning. The prospects of a TPK when these monsters are used by an unskilled DM are all too obvious. Fortunately, Eric Holmes is at hand again with a section titled Dungeon Mastering as a Fine Art. It's a relatively short section, but it does feature some several good pieces of advice that echo down the years. Once the game begins, try to keep the action moving at a dramatic pace. Dramatise the adventure as much as possible and improvise. Imagination is the key to a good game. He also features an example of play. This being the late 1970s, it includes both a caller and a mapper as distinct player roles, and the famous Xenopus sample dungeon level, which is surprisingly well put together for its age, and it doesn't suffer too much from the zoo dungeon syndrome. Taken all together, Holmes Basic is a great first attempt at an introductory edition of Dungeons & Dragons. Yes, it shows its age in places. The rules are a little disjointed at times. I lost count to the number of times Advanced Dungeons & Dragons is referenced as a source of further information. And there's the occasional mentions of creatures and concepts that don't feature anywhere else in the book but there's so much to enjoy the artwork is very evocative i've already praised the cover but i love the interior illustrations too they're a bit cartoon-like in places and lack the polish of more recent rpg art but they have a raw immediacy that's compelling two pieces by dave trumpier an evil wizard well he looks evil casting web on some poor soul and a fighter about to take on a swarthy, axe-wielding minotaur are irrevocably stuck in my mind, synonymous with the idea of what fantasy role-playing is all about. Eric Holmes gives us a complete game in less than 50 pages, which, in this current era of the megatome, is very refreshing. Yes, yes, I know it only covers levels 1 to 3, but nobody gets their character past 3rd level anyway. Do they? Do they? And, as I said, there's an admirable attempt to provide at least a little guidance to the fledgling Gamesmaster. 
Yes, uh, about that. Having said that the game made sense to me when I first encountered it, I must have skipped the DMing advice. Because the one thing I seriously misconstrued was the role of the Dungeon Master. Maybe it was the title itself, Dungeon Master. I saw it as my duty to defend the dungeon, to do whatever it took to stop the pesky adventurers from looting its treasure, putting me in direct opposition to the players. This was more than evident in the first games I ran, using the module that came with the box, my cars, in search of the unknown. They always ended in a total party kill. It's a wonder my players stuck around, really. Two quick asides. One, my car also includes some great DM guidance at the beginning of the adventure. Presumably, I must have skipped that as well. Two, this module has a great cover illustration by De Trumpier that is in stark contrast to the Sutherland picture. Where it focuses on the excitement of the conflict, Trumpier emphasises the exploration of the fantastic. As a party wanders in awe through the underground field of giant fungi, taken together, the two pieces perfectly capture the variety of experiences in the game, both terrors and wonders. Over the years, Basic D&D has been many people's gateway RPG. For some, it was Moldvay. For many others, it was the Mensa Redbox. But for me, it was Holmes. So, did I manage to recreate those feelings of that first read-through? I think maybe that was impossible. I couldn't help but read it through the prism of experience, informed by all those past games and adventures. But at times, though, holding that book in front of me, the smell of the pages, the familiar font, the art, all combine and those memory synapses fire. However fleetingly, a tantalising feeling of raw excitement returns and I'm an 11-year-old reading it for the first time all over again, and it feels like magic. Hello, I'm Chris Watkins from Bonhomie Games, and this is my first, last and everything. Rules used to matter a lot more to me back in the day, but now I'm older and have to take my glasses off to read the rules properly, I'm going to take the liberty of stretching the definition of first just a little to mean the first two. See, all this is my mum's fault, really. When I was young, she was an aspiring author. Now she's published, so I guess she's no longer aspiring. And anyway, she valued books enormously. She devoured them, and in that spirit, she'd almost always get me a title from the latest Puffin Book Club magazine that came round at my primary school. She did this on the basis that reading, like role-playing, is good for you. And as a result, I was able to read fiction, especially science fiction, by the bucket load. Mum loved the limitless scope of what could be achieved through literature, 
and perhaps that's why back in 1982 she couldn't resist trying out this new-fangled thing called a fighting fantasy gamebook. It was written by some long-haired layabouts called Ian Livingston and Steve Jackson. Don't know what happened to them in the end, but anyway, she loved the book. In fact, she was sufficiently fascinated by it that she took some of my dad's used dot matrix printer paper, which he brought home from the British Steel Corporation, to recycle as my colouring paper, and she drew up a map of Fowitop Mountain. She listed all the locations and which reference led to which encounter, and the map was sufficiently large it went across a couple of the perforated folds that linked the massive sheets together. When she finished, she gave the book and the map to me. Like Bilbo poring over Thor's map of the Lonely Mountain, I was lost in wonder. I played the book through many times, defeating Zargor the Warlock in Mortal Kombat on many an occasion, and importantly, learning the art of the keep-your-finger-in-it save point. Later, I went on to play through all seven of the earliest FF titles before sidetracking into Steve Jackson's excellent Sorcery! series, and Lone Wolf, with the rich and characterful artwork by Gary Chalk. So was Warlock my first? Well, kind of. But then, a year later, Mum, yes, Mum, it is all your fault, got me a copy of the Unwin paperback Hobbit, which had the smoky silhouette of Bilbo bowing to the magnificent Smaug on it. It was fuel for my reading addiction and swung me firmly and forever into a love of fantasy literature. As I started to read it, the father of my best mate introduced both he and I to a lad at the big school that we were due to go to the next year, who ran a fantasy game that was a bit like those fighting fantasy things you like. I think he wanted us to help it fit in at the new school, and ironically, he tried to achieve this by turning us into complete nerds. Anyway, this new game (coughs) was called Dungeons and Dragons, and it came in a smart red box with Larry Elmore artwork on the front. My first experience was almost hypnotic. My first character, Balin the Dwarf, was found tied up in a chest in the Caves of Chaos by John's adventuring party. He had had a full session of play ahead of me, so he was an expert. My second was Garon the Cleric, and he was a helpful walk-on when a TPK threatened. My role-playing of him was apparently so good in my very first session, honest gov, that he was gifted a one-off use of the Cure Light Wound spell, even though in Mensa's Beckme edition of the game... D&D first level clerics couldn't officially use CLW as it appears on character sheets from back then and through the four decades since. I was in rapture, but I was also confused by some of the rules, so John lent me the first of the two glorious red game books. And lo and behold, there was a fighting fantasy style choose your own adventure section at the start that taught me the core game mechanics. The interior art, including that of the iconic Bargle and Alina, shaped my early imaginings of what a fantasy setting looked like. The game, in one form or another, has stayed with me ever since. In fact, I still have my Garon the Cleric Citadel miniature, although poor old Balin went down the mines of Moria, also known as my mum's old Hoover, and never returned. My last has snuck in courtesy of Grogmeatish. Had I recorded this just a week earlier, it would, instead have been replaced by Robin D. Law's Esoterrorists, the original gumshoe system, whose reality-distorting horrors have provided my weekly gaming group with a little light relief during the otherwise uneventful year that has been 2020. Instead, though, my Grogmeat game has trumped it. I had planned to gamesmaster something at Grogmeat for some time, but due to the wonder that is my lovely wife Jo, and her decision to spontaneously take out our youngest for the day, 
I actually got to participate in not one, but two games during the virtual con. And both games were Chaosium's Quest Worlds. In its latest edition, Quest Worlds, also by Robin D. Laws, has been liberated from its original hardwired link to Greg Stafford's Glorantha setting. And instead, it's very much being presented as a generic role-playing system. It's a game of rulings, not rules, and in that respect echoes my early D&D experiences, where the game itself had no mechanical answer to the question of, for example, can my character crack the secret code? Instead, the system compels the games master to think on her feet and figure out how important that challenge might be in terms of its place in the overall story and the pace of the moment. In Quest Worlds, the same task could be a walk-in-the-park automatic success in one situation, yet be a near-impossible, world-defining moment of dramatic tension in another situation, all within the same game session. It all depends on how important success or failure might be to the storyline in that moment. At Grogmeet, the flexibility of the system enabled us to A-team up a jury-rigged MacGyver surfboard so that one of our crewmates could windsurf across a lake of acid to the stranded land crawler which we needed for our escape. And it did so, all without the need for mountains of special rules and tables. We managed to achieve our goal because it was cool and because we passed the dramatically appropriately challenging D20 test that Ian Cooper, our GM, set us for the challenge. And it was cool. Did I mention it was cool already? Quest Worlds is simultaneously an example of ultimate system-light modern storytelling game style, but also an absolute epitome of the oldest of old-school style play, where the feel of the dramatic tension of the moment is everything. And for that... I love it. Speaking of everything, my everything is Shadows of Esteran. Now, I need to warn you that before we continue, there's a bit of a pretension alert to go along with this section, particularly towards the back end. So, grab yourself some avocado on toast and strap in. Shadows of Esteran, the Kickstarter title by Agate Editions in France, is itself fairly unpretentious. Its dark overtones have echoes of Warhammer Fantasy roleplay and Call of Cthulhu, but at heart, it's a fairly rules-light system with a big focus on atmosphere. I met Nell, its flamboyant author, at the UK Games Expo a few years ago, and despite the fact that he charmed the socks off Joe and had a murmuring about trips to Paris, I fell for the feel and tone of the game right there at the stall. In fact, if you want to see a convention stall that just visually sings out to you to tell you exactly what a game is all about... The Esther stall at the Expo every year does this without the need of you ever opening one of their books. If you gain nothing else from this bit, you should check out Nell's stall at the Expo when the plague is over. It's the most stylish at the con every year. As a role-playing game, Shadows of Esther is rich, with tons of secondary world-building. Within its current canon of printed material, it boasts probably the five or so best-published RPG scenarios that I have ever GM'd including the Monastery of Tuath. Tuath is a scenario so clever that, whilst it's obviously inspired by the novel A Name of a Rose, that serves only to bathe the story in a rich and dark atmosphere that for us created an electric tension around the gaming table when we played it. So, you ready for the real pretension? Here it comes. Estrin is the role-playing game that crystallised for me the idea that role-playing is an art form. As legitimate as any other. 
You might not necessarily feel like it, dear listener, but each one of you listening to this right now is, to my mind, an artist. The Estrin designers didn't just want to make a role-playing game, but instead wanted to use a range of art forms to express, in their own terms, the experience of the Estrin setting. It's more than a role-playing game with some bells and whistles. Sure, the visual art is so fine it's one any's, but as the role-playing hobby approaches 50 years old, beautiful visuals are frankly a prerequisite in a modern game. The Estrin team deliver more than this, though. They've also commissioned several albums of music themed to particular places, personalities and storylines in the game, and have held concerts with bands and a symphony orchestra performing their works. They've also produced fiction, cookbooks, video games, their own real ale, and yes, a choose-your-own-adventure version of their game world. I used the music throughout our face-to-face play in my Airstream campaign, and made a point of lining up particular tracks for particular scenes. I loved it so much that I would practice introducing each new story arc so that it would be in time to a particular piece of music to enable the description to align to the pacing of the music, its peaks, its troughs and its tone. Sure, that kind of thing is not for everyone. But for me, it's made me a better GM. With all of these sensory inputs fueling my imagination like no other game. Estrin, with all its different facets, has really underscored for me the truth of the advice that if it works at your gaming table, give it a try. It has also shown to me that we are still only at the very beginning of understanding this collaborative art form that is role-playing. Pretentious enough for you? Well, finish off the quinoa, put down your grande iced sugar-free vanilla decaf latte with soy milk, pick up your hobnobs, and I'll hand you back to Dirk. Now, where was I? Reference 137. The dwarves look up from their game of dice. Do you sit and join them, mock their grey wispy beards, or draw your sword and attack? Hmm. Attic attack! Welcome to the virtual attic. We've managed to squeeze ourselves into a little hall in our respective homes, and uh, we're amongst the rafters and the various cardboard boxes, and we're pulling artifacts from gaming past magazines and there's all kinds of stuff here little boxes of, of games i've got blithy with me hey, hello there blithy hello dirk craft beer bit of craft beer it's only a few pleasures left isn't it thank god yeah. for beer beer and little holes to crawl into yeah little yeah. holes and gaming so what we're going to do this time i'm going to call it we call this attic attack but i'm going to call this art attack because what we're going to look at is D and D art. Okay, it's, a, yeah. it's, it's a big topic. So mm. we're going to have artificially constructed uh, conflicts. I think we've had a spell off, we've had a monster off, but I think we'll have a cover off. Yes, I like it. It's cover <laughs> against cover. It's a discussion of art on a, on a purely audio medium. People will love that. Let's do it. A great sequence involving mime, but that's for next time. <laughs> This time we're just looking at covers. And let's yeah. face it, these covers are ingrained in people's Of course, minds. of course. Yeah, people we're... will know these. We're not we're not picking obscure obscure arts from old D and D modules or something, are we? We're going for the big guns, the big ones. Yeah, the reason we uh, picked this as a topic and thought that it was a good topic to look at is we were looking together, weren't we, at uh, Dragon Magazine an old one, issue mm. 52 from August 1981. And that had a cover by Boris Yevo, 
or as he was Boris, he was known. Don't know what it is that if you call Boris, you get known by the name Boris. But anyway, let's not dwell yeah, on that. Let's not dwell on that one. Um, but yeah, but we looked at the art, and you know, it's fairly surreal, well rendered art. But what we were saying is that it's not. It doesn't really inspire gaming. It's not about gaming. It's about something else. It's illustrating something else. And what's interesting about how D&D art has developed over the years is that it's created its own aesthetic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, some, a lot of fantasy art is fantasy art that's, that's just, so just fantasy art, isn't it, that might be stuck on a cover. Uh, yeah, the, the D&D stuff was often for D&D, wasn't it? Yeah, which which gives it a certain something, which we maybe we'll get onto. Yeah, and it uh, it's probably a growth period, wasn't it, for fantasy art uh, in the seventies? So uh, concurrently with D and D being developed, people like Boris were like superstars, weren't they? I mean, there's an article in that Dragon magazine. Mm. Um, it, it's almost like a Playboy lifestyle. He lives, you know, living in New York in this apartment and uh, venerated for his work that he did for uh, covers. And he was, he got a coffee table, um, erotica book that he was promoting. So there's a growth area, isn't it? Because this is a, this is a thing uh, that strikes me about it is that really when you think of um, fantasy now, there are a lot of touch points, aren't there? So particularly in cinema, if you wanted to imagine something, it's probably been rendered in CGI in a film. Whereas yeah. in the 70s, that wasn't the case, was it? Well, not at all. I mean, you'd, well, you didn't have all the plethora of films that you've got nowadays and, and plethora of kind of images. No, it was, yeah, it wasn't um, wasn't quite as prolific, was it, back then? No, but it, it, so what you were relying on is these fantasy artists who were using airbrush art to create things. And those were like the like Frank Frazetta and people like that. But they were never the, never the art that I tapped into for my imagination when I was playing a game. At the moment, we're looking at these free league games, aren't we? We're playing quite a few of those. And they're really impressive, aren't they, the way that they present themselves and how there's like a consistency yeah. to them. And the uh, characters that are depicted in the art that comes with the free league game is relevant to the game itself. So it feels like you need that now. Yeah, yeah, that that's true. The early role-playing books. I mean, the... I suppose a notable example might have been something like Tunnels and Trolls that had a lot of Liz Danforth art in that. That felt like it was it was particularly packaged to give it a particular look, wasn't it? But, but a lot of a lot of role playing stuff had a mixture of art, uh, and it wasn't it wasn't consistent. It didn't present a consistent image of the game, did it? You're right. Nowadays, a lot of game books uh, are stylized, so the art is all the same. It gives a particular image to you. That, that suggests this is what the game's about, this is what the game looks like, etc. Whereas back then, often it was a mishmash of different styles of art that, that almost suggested, I suppose, a different that this game could be different things. And, and I suppose they, they were different things to different people then, but it, 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 there is that difference, isn't there, that it's different styles of art, some that give it a very dark look, some that give it a slightly comic look, some that give it a more comic book look. There's all those things, often in the same book, all together you know so it's like a scrapbook really of fantasy art 
you know, yeah. I mean, D and D is a classic example because it's got the cartoons in, hasn't it, and things like that that, oh, that right. sometimes jar a bit, and you think, oh, yeah. odd thing to put in your role play. No, who would do that now? No one, no one would do that now, would they? No. I don't think Freely or, or KSM will be publishing a publishing a role book soon with some comic book bits in. I, I've never been a fan of uh, single panel comics. I've never, I've never seen. Yeah. They're very yeah. popular, weren't they? Very popular in uh, in, in newspapers and uh, yeah. magazines in the seventies. But I think I can. Gary Larson has it, uh, but everyone else can go home. I think. Yeah, but it's an odd thing to put in your game, though, isn't it? I'll have a picture on one page of a demon slaughtering people. On the next page, I'll have a one-panel cartoon about a wizard putting his hat on upside down or something. But but nowadays, you're right. Games game publishers nowadays, the the art is is very carefully put together to give a specific idea of the game. You read a game yeah. now, and the art speaks to you about what this game is about. Less so then, I think. But I also think that there's been a proliferation of people who have their skills and are inspired to produce uh, fantasy art. So there's more people doing it. But there's also the thing of um, colour printing has improved, hasn't it, and become cheaper. So there's almost... Art's no longer there to uh, fill a space. It's there to uh, convey something about the game. Yeah, yeah. Organically, I think you could argue that all along, D and D has existed as a visual thing, as well as everything else. You know, like uh, mechanics and uh, the experience of playing it. Yeah, D&D, yeah. D and D exists as a as a form of uh, illustration and art. Yeah, it does. Uh, that's true because when you think back to those games in Games Workshop, you had RuneQuest, which had some art, but not not huge amounts of art. And then you had that wall, didn't you, of D&D modules with the covers of the modules, loads and loads of covers and loads and loads of modules. And then you had Traveller, black books with no illustrations whatsoever, you know. So, yeah, it does does, does have a visual element to it. Not perhaps, no more than any other game nowadays, but back then it possibly had more, you're right, more of a kind of visual dimension maybe than any other game. Yeah, and even though you know it has its origins in in fan um, creation, you know that it was fairly homemade, wasn't it? The original D and D was fairly yeah. homemade. It always had the sense of design about it, uh, of brand that there was a kind of consistency to those little um, chat books, wasn't there? Even if the art wasn't brilliant, um, there was like a consistency to it. Uh, on the covers, um, yeah, and it conveyed something of the of the game, and it carried that on, and it carried it on, it carried it on right to the new edition. You, you could say as well, right? Well, without further ado, reach for your box. I'll reach for my box, <laughs> and let's <laughs> okay. uh, see what we face off. It's like quick on the uh, draw here. Right. Okay, you ready? Here we go. You show box. me yours. I'll show you mine. Are you ready? Three, okay. two, one. There we go. Ah, right. We've got a so, clash of basic editions here. We have. I've gone for Errol Otis's uh, Moldvay basic cover of the, the Green Dragon and the two adventurers, one with this one with a spear and uh, the wizard, the lady wizard. That's the one I've gone for. And I've gone for 
the later edition, the Frank Mensah edition with the Larry Elmore picture depicting a, well, a, a, a dragon stalking uh, an adventurer who's uh, contorted, ready to face down this uh, creature <laughs> uh, in all its spectacle. So what, it, what is it about that, uh, that cover well, that particularly appeals? I think maybe back in the day, I didn't really see the, the kind of fantastic nature of Errol Otis's illustrations. You know, my, my eye was probably turned by Rodney Matthews and other people who were all great artists. But and I suppose Errol Otis has this kind of, it's this slightly comic book style, isn't there, to, to the way he does it. You know, he's not going for uh, trying to capture the realism um, in the way that Boris, what's his name, does, you know, with his barbarians. He's not going for kind of photographic sort of authenticity. But what's good about this cover, and I think this extends to a lot, if not all, of Errol Otis's work, it captures the game. It captures the game, doesn't it? So you've got you've got this guy with his, his green dragon and you've got a guy with a spear and his shield up. And you think, yeah, oh, yeah, that's what you do in the game, isn't it? Throw a spear at the dragon. Don't go out with your sword. And then there's a wizard, there's a magic user with some kind of green mist in one hand and a lantern in the other, ready to cast a spell. And on the floor, there's a treasure chest full of treasure. Well, that's the game, isn't it? It is a representation of D&D. Yeah. Certainly back then, you know, that's the essence of the game in, in the pictures. And I think it's true of a lot of the covers he did for the modules. You know, I've got I've got Caslamba here. Caslamba's the giant clutching the tower and people falling out of it. And uh, I've got, what's the other one I've got here? Palace of the Silver Princess, which is this that beholder thing and somebody fighting it with an axe. And they're kind of like action pictures of that would have been people's experience of the game. And that's what's so great about them. There's a, there's a picture. I mean, again, you see, this is a good example because in a way, I remember always thinking it's a duff picture. I think it's the secret of Bone Hill. There is a, a woman in a kind of strange bodysuit with a high collar zapping somebody who's gone all skeletal because he's been hit by some spell. And I just remember looking at it and thinking, so what is this? This isn't D&D. Well, nobody wears a kind of weird bodysuit in D&D. It's like superheroes. What, what's going on here? But when I look at it now, I think, is she casting shocking grasp? She's casting shocking grasp, isn't yeah. she, on somebody? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's an, it's like a snapshot of what goes on in the actual game itself. What I, what I really like about his art is the curves and the line of them. He's very organic, isn't it? It reminds me of, um, you know, uh, Robert Crumb comics, that kind of thing. And um, what makes that an iconic image, I think, is the lurid colours. It's got like a luminance to it that is very striking, isn't it? And when you can always identify his images because of the curves and the particular choice of colour, I think. What's, What's your case for your choice? Okay, so I've gone for... Larry Elmore. This is a, a very striking image and it's a very precise image. And I suppose it represents the shift, doesn't it, in TSR from that homebrew, mm. uh, handmade, uh, fanzine aesthetic to something more commercial, rendered very, you know, very with a great deal of detail and a great deal of professionalism. But it's the animation in this uh, picture because it just looks like that dragon is stalking 
the uh, character who's facing him. And I do think that dragons are badly represented these days because they, they, of all creatures... Do you mean mean like from a union perspective? Yeah, I do, yeah. I mean like the dragons union, they're not represented very well. I do think it's about time that they did organise themselves because I don't think that they're (laughs) getting any favours from um, (laughs) art and uh, and uh, computer animation because let's face it you know dragons are front and center of this game aren't they they're in the title for goodness sake but can you bring to mind any image of a dragon from the fifth edition monster manual can you bring no because they're all they're all they're just big lizards aren't they they're, they're just represented as like big a big fearsome lizard and they go right yeah dragon move on Exactly. It doesn't really grab you. Yeah, yeah. The art that grabs you is always some something else. It's not really the dragon. This depiction from this uh, Frank Mentor edition is at the point where the dragon still retains some of its mm. magnificence, some of its um, spectacle that it's lost in the subsequent years. So this uh, dragon here is terrifying. But do you know the other thing I think? I think he's, uh, it's possible to defeat him. And that's what makes it exciting. It looks like, yeah, I think he has a chance with this one. I think, you, you mean the adventurer has a chance? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that sword, that, uh, what I quite like about it is if you look closely, that sword looks magical, doesn't it? It does. The sword's got a gleam to it. At first, I th- at first you look at it and you th- see, I looked at it and thought, he's got no chance, that fella. He's toast, unless unless this is from the perspective of uh, the magic user behind him with a lightning <laughs> bolt ready. Because, of course, as everyone knows, magic users are the best class in D&D, and you need one. That's why I like the Aerolotus one. There is a magic user there getting a spell ready to blast the dragon. But in this case, you think, unless this is from the perspective of a substantial party of adventurers behind him, he's no chance. Until you look at that sword and think, Actually, that's, that sword has a certain gleam to it, you know. Has he got a dragon slayer sword there? And maybe that dragon is slightly overconfident. Yeah. Well, this in, uh, the next, in the next few seconds, that sword's going to go in and that dragon's in for the shock of his life. I've been, um, in preparation for this, I've been looking at the uh, book, um, which came out a couple of years ago, Dungeons & Dragons, Art and Arcana. I'm holding it up. Uh, again, this is a, a visual medium, obviously. Uh, Art and Arcana, A Visual History of Dungeons and Dragons. It's a great book. Um, it put it on your Christmas list because that tells a story, actually, of uh, the concept drawings that uh, Elmore did uh, in preparation for this because this was meant to be like a mass market breakthrough for um D&D at this point, and it subsequently went on to be that, didn't it? And there's a number of concept drawings showing um, different party members, but they kind of zoned in on this one figure uh, facing right. the dragon. Okay. Yeah, yeah. After a lot of careful consideration, just this uh, one figure. So he has yeah. got a wizard. He has got a wizard stood behind him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, he's got a he's hobbit, right. hobbit uh, cowering in the gold somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, well, if he's got a hobbit with him, he's not all right, is he? Yeah. You he, know. He could be toast. <laughs> Let's hope the hobbit is. 
<laughs> Only next to clerics, really, but we won't go into that. Yeah. <laughs> I, th- I think uh, a mention should be given to uh, Larry Elmore because he went on to really define that era, didn't he, of uh, D&D and mm-hmm. the way it looked. And because um, he was the art director through uh, the, those early, early uh, Dragonlands. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, they are. That's right, aren't they? They're the Dragonlands. Yeah, all that stuff. Prefer Errol Otis, I have to say. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> do you know, I would, I would agree with you to be honest. You know, because when I think of D and D, I do think of, as you say, going into games workshop and seeing that row of uh, modules. And uh, invariably, they were our Lotus ones. So you can have that first round. Right, let's go into um, the uh, second round. And the second round, uh, we're going for uh, the Dungeon Master's Guide. So let's yeah. have a Are you ready? Grab it all the I'm it. ready. I'm ready. Yeah, I'm, I'm ready. Hang on. Let me look in there. Yeah, ready to go. Okay, three, two, one. Okay, show me yours. Okay, there you go. So my choice is the Dungeon Master's Guide, the Jeff Easley cover. Ah. Jeff Easley. And this is the one where uh, there's a picture of a figure in a green robe opening some big double doors. And behind him, there's a load of what look like kind of, well, it's a range of monsters. Initially, it's like kind of undead thing, goblin things. And they're, they're a bit difficult to see. They're kind of in shadow. This guy's got a big key around his neck as well. Yeah, it's a really, I, really, really good depiction of the monsters because they're like uh, almost like William Blake-like figures, aren't they? You know, like William Blake's the flea. They're kind of uh, knobbly, uh, yeah, perceptible. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah, they're not quite. That's right. They're not quite perceptible. When you first look at it, you, you can't quite see them. You have to look quite closely to see them. Um, but I think what's what's interesting about this picture, it's always struck me as interesting, is it's less about the picture and more about what it's kind of saying because it depicts the dungeon master as like a character. Yes. Like a a person in the game. And I know it's, I know it's not saying it's not suggesting that is the case, but it's almost like a slight shift in tone where in in the original game, the, the dungeon master is, is just obviously a person who runs the game. Whereas this picture suggests the dungeon master is some kind of clever or sinister figure with his own machinations and plans for the for the players. Like, yeah, ha-ha, he, ha-ha, he, I'm the dungeon master. Look what I've got in store for you. Which is different from the earlier game, which is more more mechanical in a way, you know. Yeah, I, I, and that's, that's true, isn't it? So unlike the Dungeon Master depicted in the cartoon series, for example, this isn't a benign figure, is it? This is, uh, he, he is, he looks sinister, doesn't he, with his um, yeah. lime green um, hood. And as you say, this great impressive key, as though he's inviting you in to his world yes. of monsters and horrors. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it just, it's always interested me that. The reason why we've chosen the Dungeon Master's Guide for this uh, cover off is because if we were doing players handbook it'd be dave trampier's uh plays handbook wouldn't it because that's yeah. a classic that would win that would win wouldn't it because if you if you're thinking D and R, that is the one isn't it that yeah of the idol yeah. and the rogues uh, taking out the jewel and the uh, dead lizard men consulting the map and that kind of thing that depicts 
um, yeah. the D and D experience, doesn't it? And there's yeah. a reason why uh, that has been an enduring yeah. image of D and D. Yeah, yeah. The place handbook, yeah, that that first edition place handbook is a fantastic picture, um, and I can always remember sitting there trying to work out which character classes were depicted on the actual yeah front cover. But I do think there's a lot to be said for the uh, Dave Sutherland original Dungeon Master's Guide image. Mm. Now hear me out on this because I think over the years we've taken the mickey out of it. We used to spend a lot of time in Simon's bedroom yeah, uh, laughing at yeah. it. Yeah. Because it is on the one hand preposterous. Yeah. But on the other, there is something about it that gives the actual book some mystique with it because it's on black. And yeah. it is kind of an imposing. It's it's in the fret, isn't it? The uh, a demon. Yeah, um, that, that's how you say it. Yeah, yeah. Again, yeah I'm not, I'm not sure. Ni- you in the Nyathlatep camp, isn't it that one? The fret, ifrit, ifrit. Yeah. yeah. And you've got the uh, the party almost in shadow. You can hardly barely make them out trying to uh, fling everything they've got at it, mm. uh, while it is emitting little bits of flame. And I'm pretty sure that we had a protracted argument. Uh, saying that the actual demon was the demon that was depicted in the idol on the play's handbook. I don't know whether that's true or not. No, I think I think I do remember that debate. Yeah, yeah. It's like an extension of the the story in some way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're a bit higher level now, and rather than rather than fighting the lizard man worshippers, they're now fighting the actual <laughs> the god himself. Yeah, yeah. and then. Uh, I think it took us a while to realise that it was a single image because the back cover depicts a very angular um, city of brass, yeah. isn't it, from uh, from the plain of fire with a roiling red sea and uh, a lizard humping a banister. <laughs> yes. It's and not bad in a way. It tells, tells a bit of a story, I suppose, doesn't it? In a, in a way, it is like the, the player's handbook that we've just been talking about because it does. you can look at it and it tells you a story, doesn't it, about these adventurers and where they are and what they're fighting and that kind of thing. You know? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. And I think, um, again, it tells something of the story of uh, D&D in that the new edition, the one that you're... Uh, showing of the uh, dungeon master opening the door um, was felt a more uh, palatable image following the satanic panic because it was that very image of the uh, demon on the front of the dungeon master's guide. (laughs) Yeah, if you're worried about the satanic panic, that is not going to help, is it, that picture? Uh, Even though there is a lot of nostalgic resonance to this uh, image from the original dungeon master's guide, I'd have to give it to, uh, I'd have to give it to that one with the, as you said, the Dungeon Master is this kind of sinister character and these Hieronymus Bosch-like yeah, creatures. Yeah, I don't know. I think he's done a good, good job of convincing me that the, 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 the other Dungeon Masters are quite like It's a bit... I suppose one, the one drawback is a bit 70s, 80s, isn't it, with a scantily clad woman uh, clutched in the, the demon's hand. It's like a bit King Kong, isn't it? You know, slightly yeah. fair rare. But, I mean, you know, that's of its time, I suppose. You know, the other the two male adventurers are fully clothed and she's scantily clad. Mm. Maybe yeah. we have to give it to the, the easily version, just on that basis alone. Yeah. Easily gets it. Okay. Easily, easily gets it. Third round, we're going to go for monsters. And uh, one, two, three. Show me yours. There we go. Monster manual. 
I've gone first edition AD&D Monster Manual. <laughs> <laughs> A controversial choice, I think. Because if we if we if we say <laughs> if we if we say that early art was a kind of fanzine art, I mean that kind of is the you know pinnacle of uh, fanzine art, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's it's really the same guy who did the Dungeon Master's Guide, isn't it, James it, Sutherland? It is. I'm wondering whether it's because it's got blue skies, whether I. Yeah. Don't get treated with the same reverence as I do the, the yeah, yeah. guy. David Dave, so James David David C. Sutherland the third. I don't know what happened to the other two. But there you go. <laughs> maybe maybe they would have drawn better ones. I don't know. Yeah, I know what you mean. I suppose there's there's more of it. <laughs> Why is this picture worse than the other one? Well, there's more of this one, isn't there? There you go. There's a lot of it. I mean the other one's not too good, but this is worse because there's more there's more worseness, isn't there? <laughs> That's why it's worse. I could be an art critic, couldn't I? You could, yeah. <laughs> Sister Wendy. Sister Wendy. That's you, Sister Wendy. Talking about <laughs> the lines and the curves and the colours. I don't know. I just look at the pictures and go, that's nice. You're like Brian Sewell or something. So come on, make a case for uh, why you've picked it. You've, you've well, kind I'm not of... suggesting these conversations are contrived in any way, but it is quite difficult to justify, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Do I just admire it as a valiant effort from, from way back to try and depict these monsters you know because because again we, we we did used to go look at them and go right okay that's an is that an owl that's an owl bear at the bottom that's a troll that's a, a roper yeah there's a centaur a peg a dragon again backing up your you know another letter to the dragon's union about them being badly represented there i think um and then there's a what's that? Is that a sphinx or a what? I don't know. Oh, there's a manticore, manticore, isn't it? So I'm doing it now. Then there's a cloud giant's castle in the clouds, and a griffin, and a pixie. Some goblins running away from a purple worm, and there's a green worm thing, which I'm not sure what that is. Probably do know, but we used to have fun like looking at them and going, "Oh yeah, you know." And it, I, yeah. it's a valiant effort, isn't it? To here's this new game. We're trying to package it. Let's let's do a cover with lots of these monsters on to draw people in and make them look at them. I go, I wonder what that is. I wonder what, you know, if you didn't know anything about D&D, so I suppose it's an attempt to to seduce people into buying it uh, and an attempt to kind of represent these weird and wonderful monsters. But, but it's, I, I, it's I not it great. Is, I do think it's a testament to the idea of it, of its brand and its aesthetic, that there is something about it. It's got an iconic status by virtue of the fact that it's, uh, the first thing of its type, yes. Um, but you, you got to think what it couldn't have been any other way than it actually is, and there is nothing on earth quite like that image on the monster manual. It's yeah. there's a certain uniqueness yeah. to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Never to be repeated. When I was a kid, there used to be a bloke down the road who referred to himself as Jethro. And he used to drink a special brew out of a can. And uh, I used to admire him. He used to play with his uh, son. I used to admire him because he used to draw murals on the wall. And they mm. all kind of looked like the monster manual. It wasn't David C. Sutherland III. I mean, no. the first or the second, you know. No. But it, yeah. It, yeah, I remember yeah. him, yeah. I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, it, it, has a certain, it has a certain something, doesn't it? I suppose it's hard to dislocate your uh, nostalgia for it with your well i'd say art appreciation i haven't really got any art appreciation but yeah what little i have then yeah well you'll appreciate my monster book and mm. um, this is 
the great Russ Nicholson and Fiend Folio, the Gith Yankee. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, that wins then, doesn't it? There you go. <laughs> again, again, I think, uh, like uh, Otis, this has got um, a certain quality to it that is very <laughs> distinct because obviously Russ Nicholson has a very distinct style. And I don't think necessarily this is probably one of his best uh, images, but there is something about the lurid colours that he chose for this cover that it strikes you because of the time it was produced. But also, again, there's, there's nothing else quite like this image. There's nothing else quite like this book. And, you know, one of the great things about the theme folio is that it brought that kind of quirky, strange, British sensibility to D&D, which up until that point had been very American. Um, so, yeah, I do, I, I do think that's great. I like the back cover as well. There's some, something strangely yeah. eerie about it and weird, but that strange outline of a castle in the back. Yeah, I know what you mean. That There's something about them. I mean, the, the Russ Nichols cover is, is, is good, but... I suppose going back to that Dungeon Master's Guide and that, that Monster Mind, I suppose what's good about them is they've they've stood the test of time, not perhaps because they're brilliant, but just because they've they've been around for that yeah. long. They weren't they were mass produced and they were incredibly popular in in the, the small world of role playing. Everyone has a copy, had a copy, seen a copy. And I suppose that's part of it, isn't it? That they weren't just a picture in a fanzine that's got forgotten. It's something that's been just front and centre for so long that yeah. you can't you can't help but quite like it. Exactly. You know, kind of like a monster man you cover. It's quite like it. They quite like it. <laughs> I don't prefer to concede it's not great a great piece of art, but I do like it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's like the uh, obviously the uh, monster manual for the new edition, the fifth edition, the latest edition. Mm. The artwork in that is, you know, superb. But there is a certain, I don't want to say blandness, but a certain professional adequacy to it. You know, it's like a, it's it's rendered to uh, a Premier Inn style um, artwork. You know, that it's, it's at the point of adequacy that you can't criticise it. You can't complain, you can't complain. That's the no. thing. You can't complain, but at the same time, in the back of your mind, you're thinking there's something better somewhere, isn't there? Yeah. 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 There's a hotel better than this. Yeah. yeah. Premier Inn. Well, you're missing those individual little quirks, aren't you? You know, that you get in yeah. a homespun um, guest house, you know. Mm. They might have nylon sheets, but, you know, they'll have a proper milk in the room or something like that yeah i'm stretching the metaphor stretching the metaphor stretching the bit but i I take your point yeah 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 it's about characterfulness i think yes i think that's what it is it's about characterfulness that sometimes it can be a great a great illustration but perhaps it lacks a bit of character i think it's it's like when we you spoke to liz danforth think about liz danforth's art is it's characterful isn't it you can identify you can see it anywhere you see it and you know it, you know, that's, it is as a style of its own, you know, whereas some art, maybe that, that's not the case, you know, it's perfectly good, but it lacks a certain character in some respects. So of these um, pieces of art that we've chosen, which one 
do you think is the definitive? I think yeah, I'd, I'd still go back to Arrow Otis. I'd still go back to that yeah. cover for, for the reasons I said that I think it, it encapsulates the enca- it, it and the other things he did, despite them being pulpy and maybe maybe something that might divide opinion. You know, so I can imagine Errol Otis's work is something that people either love or loathe because it's so stylized. Yeah. Um, but for me, they do they do capture the game. And they're not just, hey, we need a piece of fantasy art. We need, we need a guy fighting a dragon. Oh, right, here's a picture of a guy fighting a dragon. Stick that on the front. Yeah. They, we need a picture of some characters from a D&D game. Oh, that, that's what they are. They're characters from a D&D game, which is a different thing altogether. Well, there you go. That's uh, Sister Sister Wendy and Brian Shule uh, going <laughs> over. Well, I think we got away with it, didn't you? Well, next episode, it's the card tricks. Yeah. <laughs> card, don't show me. In fact, don't show anybody. <laughs> we'll get away with it, I'm sure. You know. <laughs> See you next time. <laughs> Goodbye. Thank you to Lou for taking some time out to speak to us from his home in Florida. It was a real pleasure to speak to someone who was such a key part of our experience of playing in the 80s. Thanks too to Chris for his first, last and everything. I always want to find out more about Symborium after I've heard its players and thews about it. Maybe next year I'll get around to playing it. There'll be more from Daily Dwarf soon. I'm currently collecting together his essays for the fourth collection of Daily Dwarf that will be bundled with the next Grogzine. I'm expecting to get the Grogzine out to Patreon backers early next year. I'm still looking for contributions, so if you have any ideas, then please get in touch. If you remember the first episode of the podcast, you'll recall that The Daily Dwarf referred to F.C. Parker, a toy shop in Cardiff. Many of the Grog Squad have fond memories of the store. We've been trying to find out more about it, and thanks to Wayne Peters, we were able to interview a former worker there who shares his experiences of the place. Look out on the grognardfiles.com for more information soon. Thanks too to everyone who has liked, subscribed and pass on the recommendation to listen to the podcast. A signal boost is always appreciated, as is the support we get from Patreon backers who give us encouragement to continue. There are benefits to supporting too. Extra bits and pieces to say thank you for the financial help of covering the costs of running the show. I'll give some individual shout outs next time when I'll be bringing it all back home with a classic of British old school RPGs. Dragon Warriors. I'll be speaking to the creator of the game, Dave Morris, as well as looking at the game in detail with Judge Blythe. Until then, adios, amigos. John is in the basement, mixing up the medicine. I'm on the pavement, thinking about the government. The man in a trench coat, badge out, laid off. Says he's got a bad cough, wants to get it paid off. Look out, kid, it's something you did. God knows when, but you're doing it again. You better duck down the alleyway, looking for a new friend. The man in a coonskin cap in a...